0: Sadly, this is the final episode of RPS Farmside Today with Professor Gino Martini of the RPS. The good news is RPS Farmside Today is being renamed RPS Pharmacene and is expanding to cover pharmacy more generally, as well as pharmaceutical science and industry. RPS Pharmacene will include news stories and interviews with experts from across the profession, beginning in just a couple of weeks with Professor Dame Sally Davies. Keep an eye on these pages and your favourite podcast platforms for the new RPS Pharmacene podcast. Coming soon from the Royal Pharmaceutical Society at com. And now over to you, Gino. Hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Gino Martini, and I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. I'm delighted to be joined by James Rickard, who is the Chief Scientific Officer for Biotherapy Services. James, good morning. How are you today?
1: Good morning, Gina. I'm good, thank you, and and, uh, really excited to be able to chat about the the work that I've been doing at Biotherapy Services recently and and hopefully um, enthuse some of the other pharmacists to move into this area as well.
0: Absolutely. I have to say that after seeing the data that you guys have produced and some of the work that you're doing, I felt really compelled to invite you to this podcast series to really share some of the exciting work that you as a pharmacist is doing really at this forefront of healthcare. So James, I've obviously given the game away a little bit. I mean, you are a pharmacist. Can you give our members a bit of a, a snapshot of who you are and how you end up becoming chief scientific officer of Biotherapy Services?
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's been a bit of an interesting path to get here, I think. I mean, originally I was introduced to pharmacy through work experience. I thought I wanted to be a doctor and did some work experience in in hospital my dad worked at the Royal Free. And, and was lucky enough to try before I jumped in and then spent four years plus on a, on a degree and decided pharmacy looked like a very fun place to be. I got exposed to manufacturing, quality control, but also the clinical side, which was very much kind of in its infancy back then. And I, I qualified in 2006, which makes me feel old and young at the same time. And then I had a few different jobs through um, rotational sort of basic grade pharmacists. I worked in elderly care in a warehouse pharmacy doing day set boxes and then moved into kind of that classical technical services, cancer pharmacist role, And was very lucky to work at UCLH where they were just rolling out pharmacists in clinics. So rather than screening chemo away from the patients, you're actually screening it live with them. And I really found that very powerful in terms of being able to go home and feeling valued for what I do and what we do as a profession. Not so much around the chemo, but actually around all the supportive care to make sure the patient had the best journey on their chemo possible. And that's something often where pharmacists play a very big role in that then after that, I um, moved into a sponsor pharmacist role at an academic sponsor office and uh, helped sort of look after a portfolio of about 250 trials in, in different stages from closed down to opening up to in the middle and all, all the, the melee of that. But again, started missing that direct patient interaction. And I moved to Guy's um, and had a few different jobs at Guy's Hospital and with their manufacturing team and also in the quality control department. Then a job came up at Bart's Health, the deputy chief pharmacist. I didn't quite feel ready yet, but I applied. And then I got off the job and I was really glad that I did that um, and looked after technical services across three sites but also their clinical trial pharmacy side as well to help that and then also got pulled in to help in their academic sponsor office. So it's a very broad job Um, and that's where I bumped into biotherapy services. They were trying to open their clinical trial. The product was originally a medical device and then got reclassified because the pilot results were very powerful and they got taken to NICE's innovation team as this innovation device team to say, look, can we do something with this? We think there's really something here that's going to help people. That's the the founder of the company and they referred it to the MHRA. So it went from a, a, a device study to a CTIMP and as some of the listeners will know there's a pretty massive jump uh, that happens at that point point. and I was working with the company from the hospital side to try and help get the trial set up because I'd seen the results myself and then it became apparent there was really a, a full-time role with the company and I was really lucky apart from seeing the results but actually speak to some of the patients that had received the treatment and I guess avoided their life being changed the wrong way We need the patient blood to make the product. It doesn't get much more patient-centered than that. We also make it at their bedside, which is partly what we're talking about. So manufacturing a drug at the patient's bedside, not in pharmaceutical labs, which has me a while to get my head around. But also you're seeing the patients as you're treating them week on week, a bit like chemo, but obviously not. But you really get to see them through their journey and really, again, feel valued that we're providing important medical care in collaboration with the clinical team. It's definitely serendipity, but I'm really glad that I've made that jump.
0: When people ask me for advice for careers, I say, well, pharmacy is like a passport qualification. It it tells people that you've got a good understanding of clinical, of science. And together, that really puts us in a very privileged position, I suppose, of understanding how medicines are used and delivered and even regulated. And the fact that you've been able to move from sector to sector, because effectively what you've done here, you've gone from hospital pharmacy to effectively an industrial role as chief scientific officer. I think that's a really positive message to our members, particularly the early career sponsors, that actually you can move around, you can be flexible. So what was the trigger point? What was the aha moment? I really think I could do more for patients by moving into the role of, of chief scientific officer.
1: It was speaking to uh, one particular patient that had been um, referred into the hospital that I was working at, and this was sort of one of the, the patients I got to meet, that he'd been treated at a, another hospital, unfortunately had a, a single amputation already from his disease. But then subsequently, while he was in rehab, picked up another wound on his then good leg, became his bad leg, and he had asked for a second opinion. And the second opinion happened to be the surgeon that is the chief investigator on our trial, but also the company has a compassionate access scheme for patients that don't necessarily fit in the trial but where physicians feel you know the patient would benefit there's, there's no other options and that patient went on to avoid the second amputation having been recommended to have one at the, the first institution I don't think anyone in, in pharmacy particularly thinks about wounds we just think about simple dressings there's not really much treatments out there it's kind of silent don't talk about it it's one of those diseases that are kind of silent because there's not much we can do but the mortality rate for a patient with two amputations is 50% at two years and going backwards one amputation is 50% at five years I used to work in breast cancer and suddenly I was like oh wow this is like breast cancer pre Herceptin pre some other things this is a a really big area that people need help in and yeah the the pilot results as we sort of keep talking about was um, with 15 patient open label single arm it was a device study not a CTIMP but 14 of them avoided amputation I've seen about 400 clinical trials across my career and there's the CAR T-cell therapy areas that are coming and have absolutely amazing results and they really are but this is an area that there are tens of thousands of patients in the UK alone let alone globally that really need a treatment option and this we're still in trials but it's really really promising and I really wanted to jump on that and do my best to be part of getting that in the patient space as quick as possible i've always been keen in that kind of translational bench to bedside and this is a weird one and then it's kind of bedside to bedside because it, it developed clinically to then wrap pharmaceutical regulation around it to then continue it helping patients so that was really the tipping point is realizing what a big problem this, this is and actually there is a, a place that i could probably help and try and get that to patients as soon as possible
0: and i'll share a personal story about amputation in my family circle I think also we had Dame Sally Davis Davies last week talking about issues of with AMR and of course the issue about sepsis and wound healing did come up. But the bit I want to just focus on is the whole concept of point-of-care manufacturing and why it's different to normal manufacturing. You kind of alluded to it before about the fact that you're actually doing things at the patient's bedside. Can you explain a little bit more about what point-of-care manufacturing is?
1: Point-of-care manufacturing is a bit of a coverall for many things. I can't really describe all of it, but in essence it's almost going back to pharmacists being like apothecaries and actually making a tailored product to the patient there and then. I find that quite exciting. But what we're doing is the product itself has an extremely limited short shelf life. And in our instance, it's immediate use, which means once the product is the product, technically, it's not the product anymore. Within five or 10 seconds, we don't really have a time on it. It starts breaking down almost straight away. So you need the patient very close to you to be able to apply it, get it to the patient. And you can't really bring the patient into the clean room. So you have to state the products to the patient. And that has obviously a lot of challenges around it. Those pharmacists are kind of aware of the requirements for manufacturing you normally need very sort of regulated controlled spaces with clean air flows and a lot of monitoring and we're essentially working in the clinical spaces right next to the patient the other bit about point of care manufacturing that that makes it different is a lot of the time the starting materials you kind of need around you so in our case we're using the patient's own blood it's a totally autologous product but we also need them to be fresh so the product the production process is about an hour and we know that when we make the product the cells are still 97 98% viable so most of them are still alive when we put the product back on the patient which is important for it to work there's other point of care manufactured products out there at the moment like oxygen concentrating units that go in ambulances they don't need to carry oxygen cylinders anymore and their devices but it's a device making a drug that's being used for therapeutic purposes. And then there's sort of other ones around radionucleotide things as well. But it's yeah, it's generally where part of the production requires the patient, but also the fact that you need to get it to the patient really quickly. And for anyone that's worked in chemo, Melphalan is often a very tricky product because it's got sort of two to four hours and trying to line up the infusion slot for the patient and the production unit to make it and the patient turning up and not being sick and everything. And transport is always a bit of a challenge. So this is taking that supply chain and literally You're passing it to the the patient. It's like baristas, only obviously slightly more regulated and I'd like to say more qualified, definitely. But it's very much that kind of thing. You're making it to order there and then for the patient. And once the coffee's gone cold, it's spoiled, it's no good. So that's the main difference compared to classical manufacture, where you know you can have up to five years shelf life. You've got a month or two to QC test it and make sure you're happy with it. And if there's any problems, make sure you've kind of you know assessed the impact and the need for the patient. But this is a very, very short window that you're trying to decide whether the product is fit for purpose or not. And it means you're sort of designing process backwards, which is uh, quite a big challenge.
0: So basically, it's broad catch-all. So point-of-care manufacturing could be, what example, you could be 3D printing a medical device that could be inserted into the body. What you're doing right now, you're actually taking blood cells from the patient and processing them into a device or a platform, which is then reinserted back into the patient. You're literally doing it in front of the patient almost and you are delivering living drugs. Is that a very simplistic description?
1: I describe it as a very honest form of manufacture because the patient is literally watching what's happening while it's happening. So sadly have been products released to market that aren't necessarily in the best interest of the patient's to take and no one can see it. And that's one of the things with drugs. And why they're so heavily regulated is until it's in your body, you don't know whether it's right or wrong. You can literally see it being made. The patient is confident in the product that they've supported making. And it's very powerful from a patient engagement point of view. But you also make a very interesting point about 3D printed um, tablets or even, I say, polypharmacy or poly tablets being made for that patient because, you know, compliance in the elderly care patients having to take 20 plus tablets a day is challenging and actually being able to make a tablet for the patient there and then in front of them that they've only got to take one or two a day is an amazing area but from a point of care perspective it's really struggled to get into the mainstream and hopefully we're sort of breaking ground in our area but it's going to help other companies or, or academics or pharmacists or, or whoever follow in the footsteps in a different way but to help patients that also need help as well so it's just a really exciting area i think pharmacy is
0: a great place to be to help lead the way on this So my father was a very severe diabetic and eventually it got to the point where he had to have his leg amputated. Then realized that actually his prognosis was like it was like we said between one to five years. In fact, he died a year after having his leg amputated. And I thought it was a huge waste of life. I thought having his leg amputated, not being able to toilet, having to live downstairs, getting carers was a huge blow for him and an actually big impact on his quality of life. It's a subject very close to my heart. And I'm shocked that on average, about 4% of diabetics tend to lose a leg. And if you're certainly above 60 or going upwards, your prognosis actually is not very good. So I believe you're very much focused at the moment on diabetic foot ulcers. And the results I'm hearing are startling. Feet that normally would be surgically removed, you are preventing amputation at a very, very significant scale. And therefore, obviously, improving quality of life and also helping the NHS potentially to reduce costs. Because if you're preserving or preventing amputation, then the after amputation support is no longer required and the patient can live a much healthier lifestyle. Is this correct? Can you give us more background?
1: Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. In in terms of what we're trying to do and and what the NHS is currently losing resource to because it's a limited pot is it's about a billion pounds a year being spent treating diabetic for ulcers. I won't say preventing treating them. And there's about 170,000 a year, which is quite a big number. But four out of 10 of those won't heal after six months of active treatment. And generally, once that's the case, the patient is either living with a, a significant open wound, awaiting wound infection, and can have a septic event and A&E, and then they're admitted, The stats are that's kind of once a year for at least eight days of admission or they then need an amputation or they don't even survive to have an amputation. Unfortunately, mortality with an open wound and a diabetic ulcer is is a real thing as well. So we think that of that group of patients, there's about four or 5,000 patients in England alone. It's quite hard to piece together the UK data pack that we can help with that. And then what we're looking at doing after that is trying to move earlier in the intervention pathway to try and get all the amputation rate down by being able to support earlier intervention. The other bit for me, away from numbers and, and money, essentially, is is the really tangible thing that always gets me. There are nearly 250-something beds permanently filled over a year with patients with a diabetic ulcer, so the nhs is losing more than half a hospital to this problem and if we can free up some beds let alone some money there's a whole load of other patients that need help too and it's kind of those three bits really there's a direct patient benefit there's hopefully a cost benefit we'll need to be paid to to be able to provide it but also there's then a resource benefit because building hospitals and hospital beds and staffing them is much harder than printing cash really so i think there's a, a triple benefit across this and I'd like to think part of that recognition is that the UK government, as I think part of Brexit, launched uh, something called the ILAP program, which is the Innovative Licensing and Adaptive Pathways program in January this year. And we applied for an innovation passport and were successful and received that in uh, April this year. And it was a huge boost for all of us because a lot of people in the company are ex-NHS or ex-clinical and are really here because we want to benefit the patients. That's kind of why we get up out of bed in the morning and do what we do. But to get that recognition from the government that we're working in a really high health impact area where patients and people need help was really, really important. The other kind of successes we've had away from the trial in DFU is really in sort of, I think, expanding the regulatory space. We can get a, a request from a clinician that they want to try and help a patient. And it's often also called it 11th hour, but they're essentially delaying what they would normally do to try something else to try and avoid the inevitable amputation we have a very limited time window to effectively set up a new manufacturing site understand the logistics and get that through and then get a licensed site with the mhra as well so they've been very supportive for this product over a number of years to to make sure that we can keep helping patients and that's been buoying for us all as well feel a bit like we're in it together even though we are commercial actually we are part of the extended clinical team and we've even the mhra feel i think part of it as well and that's very powerful to know that you are helping individual people
0: I don't use this word miraculous very often, but I have to say looking at the website and looking at some very graphic images of diabetic full ulceration that you guys have been treating and the fact that these feet have actually survived and been able to avoid amputation is just mind-boggling. I would urge all members who have got an interest in wound healing, an interest in trying to prevent diabetic full ulcers to just check out James and the team, what they're doing, because some of the wounds you're seeing... You just think they're going to lose the foot and the whole leg. And these people are are making fantastic recoveries, James. So hats off to you. It's mind boggling. That's for using your technology or the approach of point-of-care manufacturing for diabetic full ulceration and very, very successfully. What other potential clinical uses are you exploring biotherapy services? And also, how could you see uh, point-of-care manufacturing evolve?
1: So for the products or the family of products we're developing called RapidGel, dietic Falses is the one that we're in in currently in clinical trials for. It's called Rapid1DFU. Rapidstudies.co.uk, if you're interested, has some information about the trial itself. But we chose DFU because we sort of think it's the highest impact area to look at first in terms of value to the NHS, but also the number of patients we can treat. But there are another of the 1 billion spent on DFU all chronic wounds unhealed in the NHS. It's older data, but there isn't anything current. COVID has been a very significant health priority recently, so there isn't a huge amount of publishing in other areas. But it's about 5.6 billion is lost to unhealed chronic wounds. So pressure ulcers is a very significant area. There's um, about 10,000 grade four, which is very significant to the bone um, pressure ulcers, often in, in elderly patients or paraplegics, and a huge area that we feel that we can support and move into there's a very niche area of deep sternal wounds, which is when you've had open heart surgery or you've had open chest surgery, and um, could be lung transplant as opposed to heart bypass. But there's uh, about a 3% risk in diabetic patients for, particularly, but in high risk patients that have poor healing, that that wound will break down. And the thing with your kind of sternum area is there's literally a bit of skin and a bone in your chest bone, and then behind that there's your heart cavity. So if you do end up with a, a deep sternal wound, You can often have severe bone damage, which ends in a lot of reconstructive surgery, but also you can end up with a heart infection, which typically is about six months of antibiotics, which means these patients, when I say they're blocking, it's not by choice, but they're then filling up a coronary intensive care bed unit, which we don't have a huge amount of in the country, but that's limiting the ability of that heart centre to deliver further operations because they haven't got enough bed space to do that. But also for the patients, they're potentially stuck as an inpatient for four to six months. And I think they estimate it's something about every week as an inpatient is about a year to then recover afterwards. So the longer you're in hospital for, the longer in a bed, do you ever get back to where you were? And for these patients, I think it's probably not. There's about 150 a year and about 10% mortality. So we think it's only, say only, 120, 130 patients. But that's still a lot of bed space and it's still 130 people that could have a better life for longer opposed then having life altering issues not just from healing their wound but then all of the deconditioning they have and that's that's often an issue with amputation patients so they spend so long in rehab they become deconditioned you're not as fit as you used to be and then you're more susceptible to your disease accelerating there's also some other areas pylonidal sinusitis it was one of those corridor conversations with one surgeon to the other across theatres when we were working one day and they were asking what we were doing and he said oh wow have you ever looked at which is kind of in your your behind areas and but you end up with a deep wound deep tract wound that can often get all the way up to the kidneys but they have about a 40 to 50 percent rejection rate which means every time you go for surgery you have a kind of a 50 50 chance of it working so you can have patients that have six seven eight plus reconstructive surgeries until it actually tape so we think there's an area there where we can help people get out of hospital quicker but also not have repeat surgeries and things as well there's also hernia repairs are coming up and another area we're kind of interested in but it's longer term is breast implants have about 50% rejection rate um, and we think there's something there because the product's properties not only help accelerate healing but they also have a, a very high antimicrobial activity because we're concentrating not just platelets in the blood but also white blood cells and we can we can switch that around a bit but essentially what we're seeing is a reduction in antibiotic consumption because we're preventing post-operative complications. So there's a huge myriad there, and we're scoping all of those out. What we don't want to do is jump into the thing that looks biggest. We're trying to jump into the things that are the highest impact for people and will really help the quickest. So we're currently working through all of that. These areas are quite complicated in mapping the patient journeys, and the the data is quite generic. So trying to get down to the the subpopulation that we're looking to treat is quite hard. And then going like one step way beyond, which is maybe not point for care manufacture. But there's companies, particularly in the US, but also in the UK with tissue engineered products that are growing new uh, esophagus, new lungs, even kidneys. And part of that is you're trying to grow the tissue onto to matrices. But our product accelerates growth and prevents infection. So actually there's probably a, a bit of a stretch of our tech but into creating media to support tissue engineered products to be grown quicker. But also not need antibiotics in them as well. And we could do that from the patient's own blood. So it's also kind of autologous and there's less um, rejection issues as well, which doesn't sound huge. But if you imagine it takes 45 days to grow a pair of lungs for a patient and you've only got so many workstations, if you cut that down to 30 days or in half, suddenly with the same amount of bench space, you can make twice as many sets of lungs for patients. And that's a whole load of people that can have a lung transplant. And then a normal, healthy life much quicker. So the definite, very current applications, but the scope of where we're kind of looking is much, much bigger. And even, as I said, a lot of this is conversations had because no one talks about these things, but we're starting to look at lung injury. So COVID is a particular area like lung rehabilitation, how can we help rejuvenate lung tissue, but also COPD. Um, And even into blast injuries and things from, you know, accidental explosions. There was one at Elephant Castle a few weeks ago. Luckily, no one was seriously hurt. But also military applications as well. And the the battlefield applications, we're, we're still trying to get our head around. But if you get blast wounds that unfortunately our soldiers receive, it's not just the wound itself. It's the fact that foreign matter, which often has a lot of bacteria in soil and things, is effectively being ballistically shot through someone's tissue and it can go all the way through but it can be almost impossible to clear the underlying infection in the surviving limbs of, the, of those servicemen and we think there's an area there as well so with more money with more support with more people behind us we could be up to sort of 12 to 16 different avenues that we be trying to help different groups of patients with this technology base but where it could go i guess more simply in longer term is you know pharmacy is moving into advanced practitioners there is a big gap in terms of general practice and needing support in GP surgeries or primary care. And that's almost the the area that I see pharmacy potentially moving into as I don't mean replacing more supporting and augmenting GPs. but Also, if we're then doing patient directed care at a much more local level, this could be delivered in GP surgeries, or it could even be delivered in pharmacies. I'm aware that there are pharmacies not in London, but further out the country that have podiatrists come into their pharmacies to do podiatry clinics in the pharmacy. And suddenly it's like, wow, We could have patients that are able to receive their treatment at the most convenient spot for them. They don't have to get dragged in and out of hospital all the time. And that in itself is a huge thing. Some of the most deprived areas in the country have awful, awful amputation rates. It's really hard to pick that together. But the reality is people are probably having to choose to go to work with a really severe open wound because they need to put food on the table. So being able to get as close to the patient as possible and let them get on with their life as much as possible, I think pharmacy has a really clear opportunity to enroll them
0: traditionally point-of-care manufacturing if you wanted to scale you build a bigger factory but I think what you're proposing here is actually a, a number of different ways you're scaling out you can replicate these modules but of course pharmacists because they're everywhere accessible they could actually be involved not just in PCNs but also in other facilities is that your vision for how you'd scale this and how you'd make it more accessible to patients?
1: Exactly. exactly. And I wouldn't say just this technique. I think there'll be other point of care manufacturer products coming through either with us or by behind us or other things. But I, I really think, you know, pharmacy is, a, is at the forefront of being able to, as you said at very at the very beginning of this, hold all of the specialties in, in one hat, which can be quite a hard work at times. But to actually be able to assess a patient, decide what is probably the best for them in collaboration with appropriate physicians for But then actually make and deliver the products at the same time with podiatrists or other health professional support. So, yeah, I I really believe to get this out as wide as we can, it is about finding people that can help deliver it where the patients are. And some of it is, do we staff a whole big company that's essentially kind of out driving around doing? But I think it's almost probably better that if we can fit it into existing practices of pharmacists, particularly, We can actually help people quicker and roll it out quicker and have a higher level of, I guess, qualification for the the people making the decision whether the, the product is fit or not, almost back to said sort of Victorian times and chemist nostrums and the patient comes in and they they make something there and then decide that it's going to be the right thing and that it's made to a suitable quality and provide it it's it is kind of like the new age version of that that level of pharmacy so that's yeah essentially how i see it i don't think we're going to have costers everywhere scaling our product out in that kind of style i think we've got to look to who's already there and garner their support and develop those skills
0: point of care manufacturing is here to stay it's happening now and the scope is endless James, thank you for spending time and sharing the exciting work that you're doing, the massive impact you're having on people's lives. Thank you on behalf of the Pharmaceutical Society.
1: You're welcome. And not just me, there is a whole company behind me, and I'm definitely not the person that created the sort of idea. I'm, I'm more just trying to help take it forward as fast as possible. But to all the listeners out there, all I'd say is just get stuck in. That's essentially how I've got to where I've got to in my career. And the bit I didn't mention is also I have quite a significant academic activity as well. But really, it's just kind of put yourself forward. Don't wait for the opportunity. Like, ask. And it doesn't always come out. But if you keep trying, eventually it does. And then often the first or second thing leads to something else. And then you end up being able to get the opportunity, I guess, like I have, to do something really different and groundbreaking and and huge for for patients. But thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. At
0: that point, James. Thank you. And remember, Gino and other pharmacy experts will be back very soon with our new pharmacy-wide podcast, RPS Pharmacine. Join Gino for an exclusive interview then with Professor Dame Sally Davies.